Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Bottom Up Pod. Uh, your hosts, as always, are Mike Marg, who's an investor and sales leader in residence at Craft Ventures, Ryan Lipster, who's an enterprise sales leader at Stripe, and uh, myself, Mike Heller. I lead sales at Whimsical and am a scout for Craft, which basically means I'm, I'm Mike Marg's unpaid uh, BDR in my free time. <laughs> Anyways, I'll go ahead and introduce our guest. Uh, We've got a a really exciting one today. Um, So we all met Jordan Van Horn, who we may refer to as JVH at Dropbox, where he was a revered sales manager. After Dropbox, Jordan went to Segment to be an SDR manager, or at least that's what he told us. Uh, Within a few months there, Jordan was actually running demand gen, despite the fact that he had exactly zero marketing experience. He then launched Segment's EMEA office um, and came back to SF as the VP running sales globally for Segment. Uh, Next, Jordan joined Monte Carlo at SeedStage as CRO. And in just over two years, they've become a Series D category leader uh, with a a nice billion-dollar-plus valuation. Um, You know, one of the the most fortunate things that's happened in my career uh, was getting to work for Jordan as I was first learning to sell and just kind of starting to figure out my career. Um, I'm biased, but uh, this, this really isn't an exaggeration. Jordan is the, uh, the best sales leader out there. Um, and he's a really good guy who I know Ryan and Mike have learned a ton from as well. So Jordan, thanks so much uh, from, for joining us. Mike, thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's true, I, and Mike would be remiss not to mention the, the facial hair that Jordan is donning. So we were joking about doing this in person uh, beforehand. And I really wish we yeah. were for, for a few reasons. One is, is to see that. And then also I do remember um, when Dropbox was requiring everyone to come into the office for these 8 a.m. huddles. I think it was like 2015. It's hard to imagine that happening in this day and age. And uh, a lot of eye rolling across the sales pod. But one of the, the silver linings was always to, uh, to hear Jordan rallying the troops and the energy that it brought. So <laughs> very excited to have him on today. I can't believe nah. we use this intro to put Jordan's mustache and 2015 sales <laughs> hygiene on blast. That's unreal to me, but that's great. Thank you. That's the whole reason I accept it. So this is great. Thanks for having me guys. And my mustache. Uh, for, for the listeners, just picture Ted Lasso, but about uh, 10 years younger. And, <laughs> you get the and, about, and maybe a foot shorter. <laughs> that, that too. I will, let's jump in. I think, Mike, you, you had an, uh, a fantastic question. Why, why don't we start with that one? Yeah, I, I spent some time thinking about how sales changes in a down market, in a recession. And one of the things I realized is my entire career has been in the middle of a raging bull right. market for stocks. So I think a lot of us are probably hypothesizing and theorizing more than drawing on past experience. But that's something I was curious about, Jordan. How do you think about a potential down market? How do you think that'll affect SaaS sales? And how are you just advising your team to kind of fight through it? Yeah. Um, well, I think the word, like the, the temptation for managers, um, and, and you all probably feel this as well to some extent, um, is to tell your team to like not worry about it. Uh, the, the economy is going to be fine. Like, don't make excuses. You don't get a, a, an externality as an excuse to, to, to go and not hit your number. Um, and while that is true, none of us get excuses. Um, it, it's, um, it's, it's unwise to just not acknowledge it, that, that things are, that things are different. And, um, you know, what we've, like, I think mo- most of our generation of sellers, we've gone through like what you said, 10 or 15 years of really good markets. We don't have experience, um, selling in a down market. We don't know what that feels like. And so a lot of us have never even built that muscle. And I, I think um, 
from my perspective, at least, it's really critical in those environments to be able to demonstrate to your buyer, whomever that is, one of four three things. How do you help them make money? How do you help them save money? How do you get them to market faster? Uh, how do you reduce risk? If you can do one of those four things and attach it to something that they really care about, you're going to be fine. Right, because what, what down markets actually do is they ex, they expose all of the shortcuts that you were able to get away with two years ago, right? Like the things that you could, the steps you could just skip, and knowing like I don't need to get to the the economic buyer in this situation, or like are they a champion? Are they not? Champion? It doesn't really matter. It's like like look at the usage, right? Like like they're engaging with us, and so and you're probably going to get a deal done. And and you know maybe two or three years ago, eighty percent of the time you were right, and this time it's like you actually get you get punished. Um, and so the, what I tell folks on my team is down markets uh, really do like separate the people who are exceptional and the people uh, who have a lot of growing to do. And it's, it's an opportunity for people on the team to be per to, to try to be perfect um, because they don't have to ask the question, like, should I do this like step in the process that works most of the time? Um, because the answer is probably yes, um, because something weird is going to happen. Right. Um, there's going to be layoffs. It, it, it's a huge difference to close the deal in 85 days right now versus 90 days because uh, we had a deal on day 87 uh, just yesterday that laid off 10 percent of their workforce. Right. So like time does kill all deals. And that's like all these like true things that have been like kind of true over the last 10 or 15 years are now especially true. And so the, the things that I, um, you know, going back to the original question, uh, tell my team is you have to do a couple of things. One, you have to really deeply understand the customer and deeply understand what they care about and what's important to them. And if you're not tied to something that they care about, I guarantee you that you're going to get put on the back burner. Five years ago, you're put on the back burner because they just had, they had too much stuff to do and didn't have enough time to worry about it. Um, and money was cheaper than time. And now they actually have to make business cases. So that's the first one. And if you don't understand your customer's problem and the negative uh, impacts associated with it, um, you're going to have a really hard time making a case uh, when that approval process inevitably happens. Um, the second thing that I tell people is to really deeply understand how decisions can uh, are made and who can say no uh, and what they're seeing change uh, in the current environment. And so really understanding how decisions are made at companies, uh, you're going to see people who have always been able to just sign a DocuSign uh, now go through two extra layers of, of approval that they didn't know about. And so you have to be really diligent in running discovery in terms of how decisions are made. Um, and then the third thing I could say is, um, and this is like super generic, like horrible sales leadership advice that your manager always says to you in a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but I think it's, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, you, you have to get to power in the organization. You have to get to the person that, that owns budget right now. Um, because they're really like the person that owns discretionary budget is kind of the only person that matters. Right. And they've got, They've got five people, like the person you're selling to, asking them for something, and you have no idea whether the person that you, you that cares about your product has more pull or less pull than somebody else. And so you really just, in so far as you can, you have to get as high in the organization as possible and attached to something that they care about. That's great. I think it's unfair. Like it feels unfair to a seller, but ultimately, the, our boss is the market. Our boss is what does the mm -hmm. market value? The market values growth. And that, I think, is what gave birth to this entire industry, the VC-funded SaaS startups, is these things can grow really fast. Right. And in down markets, it just thins out who can actually grow really fast, and it's all companies that solve a massive pain point and serve as core infrastructure and can't be ripped out and you can't live without. And everyone who isn't that stops attracting investment. It's just, it's just how, right. I mean, the market is a brutal place and down markets, I do think expose that, but I love how you broke that down. Uh, JBH, yeah. thank you. 
Hey, Jordan, staying on the, the recession theme. Um, there's no recession for- yet. There's, there's a market downturn. There's no recession Sorry. yet. <laughs> my my apologies for speaking out of turn. Speaking <laughs> on the, the downturn theme, um, we've all gone to you for, for sales advice. We've also gone to you for career advice at, at times uh, when, when we've been trying to figure out what to do. Um, I've looked at a bunch of folks recently who have either been laid off or at companies that mm. are on a different trajectory right now. Um, sellers, sales managers that are trying to figure out what to do next. What would you advise uh, a, a great early or mid-career salesperson um, trying to figure out what the right move is in, in this market? Right. I There's a part of me that doesn't, and I have to think more about this, but there's a part of me that doesn't think that you know, any market downturn would change uh, the core fundamentals of what you look for. Uh, now, granted, you're probably going to ask someone what their runway is, uh, and you're going to think about how much money they have in their bank account, um, because that's a, a new market reality that uh, fundraising possibly for the next few quarters is going to be difficult. But, you know, the same maxims hold true, which is like the two most important things in your career are the people that you work with, uh, and then the, the brands or companies that you're associated with on your resume. And so, um, you know, when I'm hiring people for any role, I'm looking for, um, did they like achieve a material impact on a company that grew really quickly over a sustained period of time? Uh, so that's great companies, right? And, and do, are there other people that they know if they're a manager, for example, can they go hire great people? Um, but have they learned from, and have they, do they continue to learn from the best people in the market? And, and like, I think just to like simplify things, like I don't really even think I didn't, I, you don't, I don't think really about product anymore. I don't think about like um, fundraising or like what's the go to market strategy or any of that stuff. Um, it's really like, are these people that I think like I can learn a ton from because in the, in the grand scope scheme of your career, it's really just how quickly you can learn and grow. Like, um, you know, growth may be out for companies right now, but it's not out for people. And so, um, you know, I always tell people, like, do not optimize ever for the type of job. That's how I ended up being an SDR manager at Segment, right? Um, or got <laughs> deported to Dublin um, or joined a company that had 15 people and no revenue like Monte Carlo, right? Like you, you pick you pick people um, that at the end of the day and, you know, even just thinking about the most treasured things in my career now are the lessons that I've learned and the people that I've learned them from. Uh, and those happen from, um, you know, really great companies and working with really great people. And I don't think that's ever going to change. Jordan, similar vein. How do you think about that when vetting founders, right? Cause you talked a little bit about reps, sales managers. I think, uh, oftentimes uh, it's a small industry. So you, you kind of talked about some of the data points or even just being able to back channel or see like, how has this person learned and grown in their career? Sometimes founders, a lot younger, might not have the track record. How, how do you think about that? And how would you advise some of our listeners who might be looking at early stage companies? Humility. Just Yeah, say more. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Easy. Next question. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, if you think about anyone in their career, like starting a company is really freaking hard, right? Um, and no matter how smart you are, uh, no matter how talented you are, you are going to fall on your face and you are going to fail. And again, like the only thing that matters is the speed of learning. There may be a few companies out there that go fi- go have like such a strong idea that they can explode based on the quality of your idea. I'm willing to bet you that the four of us don't know what those ideas are. 
The smartest people in Mark's profession don't Mike, know what Mike. those companies. Yeah, Mike, Mike. Even Mike. But the smartest VCs in the <laughs> yeah. world don't. Otherwise, you really bet on 500 companies so that five make it, right? Like, yeah. no one knows. And so, like, but I think that we believe that we can, like, figure out the market because, like, you know, tech is full of so many, like, just, like, you know, extremely smart people that went to places like Cornell or uh, wherever. And, uh, but, you know, ultimately, <laughs> that's a, that's a burn on someone that I used to work with, but that's a different conversation. Uh, but you this, just, you this person find... didn't go to Cornell, by the way. He actually went I to know. Columbia. The per- oh, okay. I didn't realize that was part of the <laughs> it's joke. The same. It's the same. Yeah. I didn't need to interrupt most, your train of most, thought most, with that yeah, aside. Yeah, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. We're, Sorry. Joke is the history of the podcast. They're all the same. That's my joke. Anyways. Um, but like we all think we can, <laughs> we can figure out uh, the market, and uh, and you can't. All you can figure out is the because pr- what is a company? It's a collection of people who make decisions, right? And who are able to execute and figure out what they're going to focus on, what they're going to spend the limited resources, time, money, etc., um, and what they're going to spend those things on. And so, you know, someone who's humble and able to to learn really quickly and can and can create an environment for failure and can create an environment where where you're supported is super critical. Uh, and if they're humble and they don't let their ego get in the way, um, that company's probably going to do pretty well. Um, and they're probably going to grow and they're probably going to bring in the right people because you're looking for, you're not looking for slow or you're not looking for intercept. You're looking for the slow and someone who's humble and can learn has a growth mindset, for example, um, is just going to like take off. And someone who's like very arrogant and thinks that they're like, and, and they quote you that thing that may have been quoted by Henry Ford. I'm not sure if it was about a faster horse. Like don't, like that's risky, right? Because that person thinks yeah. they know everything, and no one, no one does. Well, How so do you assess that uh, in 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 Peter at segment or a bar at Monte Carlo? Is that you? I know you have a great knack for for interviewing, but what were the things you did to to get to that answer? Um, I ask them about mistakes that they made. Um, you know, um, so a really good question. This is for interviewing founders or interviewing like executives. Is you know, tell me about a situation. And then grail, right? Like, what were your goals? What were your results? What are your actions, your insights, and your learnings? And the insights and learnings are like the failures that you made. Now, you don't ask that to a founder, obviously. That's like a that's a very formal interview question. You might ask them that, like, hey, like, what's a mistake that y'all made, and how'd you learn from it? And what you're looking for is you're looking for does that person actually take personal ownership for that mistake? Um, does that person show that they've actually really thoughtfully understood the causes of that mistake? And has that person actually implemented things to actually to, to fix that mistake? It's the same thing that any of you would interview salespeople for, right? Like founders are just people um, that are just like doing something slightly different. And so, um, so yeah, I always ask them that question. Tell me about a mistake that you made. Tell me about um, the worst hire you've ever made. Tell me about um, this job. What's hard about it? Um, what do you think is hard about it? Like all of those questions suss out like how that person thinks about adversity and difficulty. Jordan, I'm really curious about your start at Monte Carlo because I think it's rare for someone as senior as you to join pre-revenue as CRO. And maybe I heard that incorrectly, but I know you did join very early in the revenue journey. So just getting a better understanding. I mean, there's a bunch of questions baked in here, but I guess first would be like how you found out about the opportunity and why you decided to join. And then I'm really interested in how you kind of took them from, you know, zero to crossing the penny gap. And then beyond that, that's fascinating to me, given how early you joined. You guys know, I like to take credit for things I haven't done. So I will take credit for joining pre-revenue, but I, I didn't. Uh, so, but point to it, it was probably about 40 or 50 K in revenue uh, when I joined Monte Carlo. Uh, and, but 
the point was taken. It's still objectively just like a very early, risky, stupid decision. And just for the record, I got very lucky. Like looking back, I'm like, boy, that was a really dumb idea. Like I did not think it through all the way. Um, it worked out for me, but it like wasn't probably the most rational decision. Um, you know, I interviewed at like 30 companies uh, coming out of segment. And they're mostly like series B, series C companies that were around 20, 25 million. And I just found myself, um, you know, if you think about that, that kind of North star of like, what are the problems that you get to solve and who are the people that you get to solve it with? Um, because if they're interesting problems, you get to bring other great people with you. Um, the problems that you were solved that you solve at that stage are just very different and they're pretty boring and mundane. Like everyone wanted me to just go do what I did at segment and do it over again. And, and like, it didn't seem very fun, fun for me. Um, and I remember meeting uh, our CEO, Bar Moses, uh, and they had like seven people at the time. I don't remember how I met them. Um, and at the time, they were pre-revenue. And I told them, like, this thing is just like so early. I love what you're doing. Because I also understood the problem that she was trying to solve. Um, and when I was talking to her about it, I learned that like the way that she centered around how she was going to solve it, she went out and talked to hundreds of customers. So like obsessively customer-oriented and like what a smart way to go solve a problem. Um, and then just like the way she thought about creating a category, the type of content that they were putting out back before they even had, had like any customers was, was like incredible. They were like totally forming like this new thing out of nothing. Um, it was, it was inspiring. And so, you know, I talked to her and I just told, I remember telling her like, this is way too early for me. So I like referenced, I, I like referred in like a salesperson that I worked with who was looking for a new job and he joined and I said, good luck. If you're ever looking for a VP of sales, let me know. And then like two months later I was working there. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, it was that. Um, I had come to believe that uh, that founder was going to win. She was going to win no matter what. The people that she was surrounding her, herself with were going to win. Um, and they just had like this idea that it was such a strong idea. It was such a strong company idea. And I, and I, was, and I was close to that, having been at Segment, um, solving a problem around data quality. And so, um, so yeah. And, and the other thing I'll, I'll say as well is I picked a founder. This isn't your question, but I think it's an important part of it. I picked a founder who had strengths that uh, augmented my weaknesses. And so like, there's like three or four like core pillars of great sales leadership. Um, you know, one of my biggest weaknesses, I'm not like a storyteller. I'm not like a, I'm not like the evangelist. I'm not the person that comes in and like weaves this artistic narrative. I'm just, I'm like a people person and I'm a systems and operations person. Um, Mike, I'm not good at it. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm just, you're not, you're, you're not bad. Yeah. You're not, I'm not good. But, but it's good, not my strength. You wouldn't hire me yeah. for it. And so I remember telling him yeah. like, like, I'm not going to put together a pitch deck. I'm not going to come up with some analogy about how this thing is like a tree in the forest. Like, I'm just not. Um, I'm going to hire really good people, and I'm going to figure out, like, the system and process. And, like, she was so good at that story that um, that our strengths and weaknesses complemented each other. And that was another critical thing um, because I needed someone who was going to, like, not – punish me because they were expecting me to do something that I wasn't good at. Um, and I think founders also need to understand that, you know, salespeople can't, they can't be all of those things. You know, you're going to have strengths and you're going to have weaknesses just like anybody else. You have to figure out how you build a team around them to be successful. Um, and I, and she was that person for me that was able to do that. I, I know we're going to switch gears in a second, but maybe if we could quickly touch on systems and operations um, that, that Jordan was just hitting on, because when it comes to, segmenting a sales team. I think there are lots of different ways to cut it. It's going to depend on um, <clears throat> the market opportunity, uh, enterprise, SMB, etc. But Jordan, I'd love to hear how you think about this when you're kind of sizing up a revenue org uh, for all things segmentation, right? Whether that means like life cycle AEs, a distinction between new biz and existing biz, expansion. How do you think about that? 
Mark's going to cut this part. I just want to be the first to, to let y'all know. Oh, this, this is on is the cr- cutting room floor already. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lesson in here, but like, um, Ryan, the go-to-market team's 80 people at this point, Monte Carlo. We still haven't thought about it. We have not segmented. We like, we're kind of at that point where it's maybe a little bit too late. We should probably start doing it. Um, but I, and I want to clarify why. So like two years ago, we had $40,000 in revenue, right? Um, today we're, uh, like in eight figures of revenue, the go-to-market team's 80, um, across sales, CS, SE, et cetera. And, you know, in the pandemic we hired, we didn't hire based on location. We just hired where the best people all over the place. And we figured everything else out later. Um, and one of the things that we just opted not to do was we opted not to segment because the, the, the gain was not worth the cost. And I think that's a really important mm. early stage thing is like, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Um, mm. And like, think about all of the energy that we spent at Dropbox on territories, on like not having the perfect territory not having this and not having that. And it's totally. like, you know, when you're, when they, every quarter is live or die for you as an organization, um, is that the conversation you want to be having with your team, you know, with 10 days to go in the quarter? And so we opted for like a very chaotic um, organization and we hired people who were able to handle that. And I tried to scare them all away and none of them got scared away. Um, and so like, we all know, like you're going to act like owners, it's going to like balance out in the long run of things, but we're, we're going to, you know, do more like of a name model or we're going to, it's like, it's a big enough territory that we're able to do that. Now to get to the, the core of your question, if you're deciding to start it the first time, which I'm not, we're now starting to think about like, you know, we're starting with the customer and what's like the best customer experience. And there's a couple of things that we've realized. Um, what you're looking for is you're looking for like centers of gravity. And so um, you'll find that there will be some natural break in the employee size, right? Where buying habits change. Um, at segment, there was this really weird thing where um, our conversion rate sales cycles and all this stuff was the same from zero to 500 employees. And then from 500 to 3000 employees, no one bought anything. Like everything just went off a cliff. Like sales cycles went up to like, like four X win rates, like, quartered and we and so we called it the dead zone and then the enterprise it picked up again and so one of the things that i did a segment was i made it illegal in the organization legal is a funny word but i made it illegal to sell into that zone and everyone like lost their minds and uh but you know we just said no we're not going to sell within that segment anymore it's just a waste of time and so you're going to find these gravities where like customers start behaving the same way um, because their needs are the same and the problems they're trying to solve are the same and they might be different and i think that's also true of um if you think about like renewals or expansion um, or new business, right? Um, you're gonna you're looking for these centers of gravity where like special where specialization can start driving excellence. Um, and for us, we're like right at that point where we're starting to think about that, uh, and we probably need to to roll something like that out in the next three to six months. I don't know if I want to cut that. If we can keep, Mike, it, you want to cut it? A, it's a, it's a I'm sorry, different. we already made the decision to cut it. It's cut. Unrecorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back to you. Uh, guys were on mute the whole time. I hate to tell you. um let's let's uh yeah i guess continuing on the uh the monte carlo uh, story jordan i I know when when you joined there um the hypothesis was that the sales process would be fairly product-led um y'all had a low barriers to entry uh good speed to value um and i think there was pressure in in kind of a fast-growing market to capture as much of it as fast as possible how did you you go about discovering what the right motion was uh, at Monte Carlo. Yeah. So when I had started, um, I want to say like five companies in the category, it's a brand new category. So never, never been sold before, never been bought before, whatever. 
So um, when I started, five companies got funding in the space. And so we, we realized it was going to be a land grab pretty quickly. And so the, the logical thing is, okay, let's go get as many customers as possible. Um, but when we were looking at, uh, they were like 180 days, 210 days. Um, the ASPs were like, Five thousand dollars, you know, it like like nothing screamed like any sort of repeatable business. And then you actually just like it's kind of a feel thing in the early stages, right? Because you only have like twenty or so data points to go off of. The the deals were just hard. Yeah, yeah a bunch of other companies got funding. It was like a hundred. Good luck cutting this, Mike. Just you're not gonna be able to figure this one out. Um, so <laughs> sales sales just wasn't working, right? It, like there's nothing that was scalable about it. And you know, and, and sometimes that can be like a product market fit standpoint. Right. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter what your go to market is. Like you just don't have product market fit yet. Um, but I talked to customers and when they describe and prospects and when they describe what we were doing or what we were what they wanted to do, they were describing our product. When you talk to customers, they're all happy. And you talk to prospects, they all want exactly what you want. And so there's some disconnect here in terms of, um, of like the desire for a solution and then the, what they're buying and their evaluation processes. And what we realized was customers just had no idea how to evaluate uh, a tool like Monte Carlo. Right. Like it's a very it's like a totally different way of doing things. It's a different discipline. You have to really train people. You have to be really directive and tell people exactly how to do something. You have to teach someone a new thing. Um, and there's no there's no analog for it. And so um, what we realized pretty early on was that, like, if we're not in control of the sales cycle, like we're going to be in a rough spot. So, OK, at that point, you've got kind of two options. You can either um, create a product that actually like has, you know, pretty significant guardrails that could take people on a journey that can like kind of frustrate or redirect them so that they can follow the things, or you can use humans. Um, and we elected to use humans and I'll tell you how we made the decision. Well, um, the summary of like why we made the decision was that, um, we realized that the problem we were solving was being solved at the top of the house and that person was never going to self-serve anything. Right. And so the way we figured that out is we hired a, um, we had one like super technical seller who was like a former SE. And then we had one uh, like just classic enterprise sales AE, right? And we just had them run cycles side by side. And the enterprise AE did, did all the enterprise AE things. They went to the top of the house. They like didn't give them access to the POC until they like agreed on success criteria. They did all the, th they, they just did all the things that you would expect. And what we saw like instantly side by side is you have, um, you know, the, the product led approach, 180 days, 210 days, 240 days, 50% win rate, right? Like 12K ASP. And then you had the, um, the, the sales led growth that was like 60 days, um, access to executives, like 100% win rate, ASPs that were four or five, six X. And so you just saw this like massive difference in how things happened. And so we just A-B tested it, frankly. Um, and, and that's what we learned. We learned that like the person that actually cares about it um, is at the very, very top of the house. And that's it. So like going back to that question of like, how do you think about going to go to market? What's the problem that you're trying to solve? Who are you trying to solve it for? Um, and so like for, you know, Miro, for example, where like with the problem that you're trying to solve is for an individual on the ground and you've got millions and millions of people that can go use this product. It makes a ton of sense to go like bottoms up. Right. But for Monte Carlo, where it's tops down, um, and there's really only like a small handful of people that can benefit from this solution um, in every company, then it actually might not make sense to go uh, bottoms up. And that was a decision that we made, and uh, it was a turning inflection point for our company. It's very well said. I think PLG is a first principles decision. You have to really evaluate the entire picture and kind of architect your sales funnel. And mm -hmm. it's a, it's like a chain, it's a link of, uh, 
it's a chain of links. And mm-hmm. if one of those links is broken, the whole thing won't work. So I do think it's very hard to make decisions from analogy when it comes to go to market. I think it's a first principles thing and you have to analyze every individual aspect right. of your product, your target market, your buyer, how much they're willing to spend, who makes decisions, how how plentiful the people are that evaluate your solution in an org. If there's only one or two, right. bottom up is way tougher. So it's cool that you guys had the wherewithal to really pressure test all these things and align on the one that fit the best. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. And I like the contrast between Miro at one end and being very end user centric and Monte Carlo on the other, I guess there, there are a handful of companies that are probably somewhere in between. Like mm. you got technical PLG companies, you have API startups, you have segment uh, where you worked before. Um, how did the, the, uh, kind of PLG and the fact that um, end users had access or could download a free version. How did that impact the, the sales motion at, at Segment as you were building um, that org? Segment was super interesting in that um, at different segments, it was a different thing, right? So like in the SMB, like, like for those of you that aren't familiar with Segment, basically it's this tool that allows you to centralize your tracking into one place and you can turn on and off a bunch of tools for, for small companies, they can go buy like 15 different MarTech tools and turn them on all at once, right? In the enterprise space, it's actually they're using it for a very different purpose. They're centralizing their data. They're standardizing like a, how they track data across, you know, maybe like 100 data engineers and centralizing it into a data warehouse. And so even when I just describe those two things, they're actually very different use cases. And so that, that's the tricky thing is like, and I think this is what gave me um, this like perspective. I, I was really grateful for this opportunity because it gave me that perspective and nuance that like, segment in the SMB space that below 500 was, um, was PLG all day. We couldn't get someone to give us a metric to save our life. We couldn't get to an executive, like we couldn't gate the product because you could just go sign up online. Uh, but on the, in the enterprise, you actually had to shift the way that they did things. So, so fundamentally, uh, you know, it, it goes back to the problem that you're trying to solve. And I think that what I would always ask is what problem are you trying to solve and who are you trying to solve it? for and who needs to know when the problem got solved. And I think that the, the, typically the third one is like where you kind of fall down, right? Because that's the, that's the stakeholder who, who's the beneficiary at the end of the day, right? And so, you know, for, seg- for a segment in the SMB business, who needed to know, well, the person who had to ship the product on time, who had to launch the app on, you know, July 31st, needed to know that everything was going to be up and running. Like that was the stakeholder. In the enterprise space, the person that needed to know the the CIO needed to know their data was trustworthy because their CEO has been like breathing down their neck for the last three quarters that they can't get like good data to the street, right? And when you think of it that way, it actually like completely changes how you go to market in both those instances. Jordan, has selling changed since we were working together in like fourteen, fifteen? Uh, do you feel like the fundamentals are all the same? Do you think buyers are more wary of salespeople? Has anything meaningfully shifted in your mind or is it kind of same game we were playing, you know, seven years ago? No, man, I don't know. That's a good question. I, um, I feel like when we all were at Dropbox selling changed a lot in that moment, like that was like, I think that was like this, like almost this like PLG peak of like, like, you know, if you're gonna make a hype cycle, it's like all the way on the, on the way up to the top. You had Atlassian, Slack, Dropbox. We don't need salespeople. Like we have a product that sells itself. <laughs> this stuff is a waste of money. Like this is a really expensive resource. What value do they add? You know, like that thing. And you had, uh, and then you kind of had this like disillusionment <clears throat> phase 
um, in 2016, 2017, 2018, when you're like, okay, well, there, there's like, um, there's something to this. And I think like one thing that I'll say is PLG has like completely changed the way that we sell. Every company is a PLG company. Like, and what I mean by that is if you break PLG, like if you break sales down to its component parts, you have distribution, like value capture, value realization, and like expansion and renewal. Right. Um, and so distribution was traditionally like folks in their, in their briefcases going to the offices, like showing a presentation and showing the ROI slide and convincing a bunch of people. Um, and then value capture was this lengthy, like human led human centric approach. Um, and then like the renewal was like relationship based, right. Or the deal was relationship based. And that's the golf courses and TV dinners or whatever TV dinners, steak dinners, um, TV dinners. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, Is that how you did I, sales with TV dinners? I, I wasn't, I wasn't good at it. I think we know why that, uh, I use TV dinners. Um, but PLG, like, you know, it basically like dropped a crater, right? Where it really dropped the cradle is like in the, in the middle of that process, right? Like value capture, realization and expansion. Like this con, like it, it shifted a ton of power to the end consumer and user of the day. So it like, it doesn't matter how good the Monte Carlo data team is at sales. And I think they're pretty good. Um, but you know what? Like at the end of the day, if our product doesn't do what it says it's going to do, we don't have a chance. Like that's why we're successful is because the product's just really freaking good. And I think that is product led growth, but that's, but like what we don't do is we don't use that in the distribution channel, right? We don't make it easy for you to go use the tool because there's actually a lot of homework that you have no idea that you need to do up front to be successful with the tool. And so we've elected to actually make it pretty difficult to use the tool on the distribution front. And, and so I think like, uh, to back to your question, what's changed? I think organizations need to think through how those two things fit together. Right. Um, when, when are you actually getting the customer to value realization? Are you doing it through the product? Are you doing it through like an ROI presentation? When are you actually getting the customer to discover what the product is and what it can do for their organization? Is it through a salesperson? Is it through the product? Is it through both? Um, what do you do on the renewal cycle? Right. How do you, and there's a whole suite of tools now that exist for, you know, getting product usage data into the hands of sellers. Right. I think, uh, you all invest in a few of them. Right. Uh, so like there's an entire, like, industry that's going to crop up around those things. And so I, what I think is like changing um, to back, go back to your question, Mike, is I think sellers will have to be uh, really proficient in understanding their customers and understanding why their customers are using the product and understanding why the product's going to solve their customers' problems. And they have to create this feedback loop and that's going to become their job, right? It's just like, how do you just keep this continuous feedback loop of like customer to product to budget holder, to customer, to product, to budget holder. And it's just like this, this virtuous cycle. And if, if sellers can't do that, I don't believe they're going to be successful. It's really interesting because you're making a distinction between what PLG means to most people today. I think it's, it basically means lead gen, the way that most right. people describe it. Right. And what you're saying is PLG, like if your product is great, you don't have to generate that lead with someone signing up for free, but you're going to generate your upsell by the product being amazing and, and, being great for a lot of different people within the org and using more of it, et cetera. Right. So, so growth can come in, in new leads or it can come from upsell. Yeah. Well, I think like snow, you're right. I think snowflakes like the best example. You want to look at like a really unique, what I would say is like, you wouldn't call it a PLG company, but if you actually think about why is snowflake so valuable, well, it's their NDR, right? It's the fact that customers use it. And then the next year they use twice as much of it. And the next year they use four times as much of it. Right. Why do they do that? Cause the product's just so darn good. And the salespeople are like, 
in their business and they understand it and they know the problems they're trying to solve and they're creative about how to use the problem, the product to solve that problem. And it's just like becomes this flywheel. And like, that's not PLG in that, you know, you're going to go like everyone goes signs up and swipes the credit card that I think you can do that now at Snowflake. Um, but it's, but it's PLG in the fact that like, that's the real reason like Snowflake grows so fast, their expansion. My, uh, Jordan, that's a, uh, it's a super interesting way to think about PLG where it is lead gen, but potentially because the buyer is so happy, they tweet about it or, or tell their network and, and kind of lead yeah. make their way back to the, the company. Um, the, I think you've done a particularly good job of hiring um, a strong team. Um, and I know you've thought a lot about recruiting, but it seems to me like this type of rep who is both going to be able to do the enterprise thing, uh, get the buyer on the line and, and tell a compelling narrative, and also understand product usage and narratives and use cases is probably kind of tough to find. Like, how yeah. do you think about who's successful in, in these types of roles and kind of what, what you've done uh, well to, uh, to attract them to work with you? Yeah, um, I think it, like things that are as complex as like go-to-market motions or humans, um, the best thing that you can do is break them down to their component parts. Um, and so in the same way that we did that just now with distribution, like here's how you think about people, like what are the three reasons why people succeed or fail at companies? Well, one is they have the right motivation fit, right? They want to do the thing that's hard to do. Um, two, they have the right experience, um, that gives them the opportunity to go acquire the skills to be successful in the job. Right. And so they have the right skills. They get, they're actually competent in it. Um, and, and three, they're a cultural fit. They operate in the way that, that you expect them to operate in the organization. And so like, I typically think about people like through those three tiers and I go, I, I try to go like a little bit secondary in the things that you just asked, which is like, um, how do you get someone who's super technical and speaks to the business value? Because candidly, no matter how good someone is, you're going to find someone that made majors and minors, right? And I always encourage people like figure out what your major is and what your minor is, and then place a bet that they're top one, per- like like place a bet that that's what you're looking for, and go hire the people that are top one percent there. But also make sure that they have the motivation fit; they're willing to deal with all the BS and all the changes that they're about to go through in the next four years at your company, um, and make sure that they're a cultural fit that they're that they're humble that they're willing to like figure this thing out that they're not going to hold on to, Hey, this is the way that I did things at you know, company ABC, this is how it's going to work here. Right. So, um, so I typically look mostly at again, humility, like their ability to take feedback, their ability to self-reflection, their, uh, their propensity for growth, like their trajectory. And, um, and then what I'll do is I'll try to bias towards what I think is the most important. Um, cause what you did, you just kind of created this, um, this binary, um, you know, persons in the weeds and the technical weeds, person's able to speak to an exec, um, I pick one and, um, and I optimize for that thing. If they're not that thing, I have to figure out how do I support them? So I've hired like really businessy, like someone who can sell to an EB, like nobody's business isn't technical. I better figure out how they're going to have an SE that's going to support them. I better figure out how I'm going to enable them. Um, on the other side, you know, someone who's going to be like really in the weeds technically, um, I better have a manager who's going to be willing to, to do that with them and teach them how to do it. And if they're willing to learn, they're going to get good at it. Um, so I think it's like, it's not just the hire. It's also what you do with the hire and the team that you put around to make them successful. Yeah. These jobs are really hard. Uh, yeah. you were talking about yeah. all the demands that there are right. In addition to selling, understanding the product, like developing relationships with customers, you can kind of go down the line. Um, and during hyper growth, when 
we're just throwing so much at our account executives that you really do need to be ruthless in, in terms of prioritization. So one of the things, right. Jordan, I wanted to uh, hear from you and, and hopefully you can shed some advice to our listeners is on how to balance that with life. Um, people aren't going to be able to see this uh, on the podcast, but your daughter came in, uh, know that multiple you're a family times. man. Yeah. <laughs> she came in multiple times. Is you, that you a passive aggressive people? way to ask why his daughter came in? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I actually thought that maybe uh, we were going to give her the mic for a second. She seemed pretty passionate about PLG, too. Um, <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, um, how do you advise people in, in, in the best way to, to balance uh, work and life? Yeah, I think um, it's a good question. And I, I've spent a, a ton of time thinking about this, and I haven't figured it out for the record. I think it's like a you're, if you have anything outside of work in this industry, there's going to be tension. You have to eventually choose what your boundaries are. So I'm like super firm with my boundaries. Uh, so like, for example, you can't find me. I don't exist at Monte Carlo from the hours of 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. And from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. And you all remember that at Dropbox. I never did anything after hours. I was like the least social person you ever found. And I was really clear with everyone about my boundaries. And I think that's scary for people um, to set really tight boundaries. But what boundaries force you to do, I believe they actually make you better at your job. Um, because I don't know about you guys, but when I'm spending more and more hours, I'm generally doing it because I'm not spending my time on the most important things. And so I'm just like expanding to take on all the demands that are being placed on me. And what a boundary does or constriction does is it forces me to say, okay, what's the most important thing that I can do with the next 30 minutes. And so I think that like the first thing is being really clear and like unflinching and, um, and unforgiving with like your boundaries is really critical. And by the way, you have to do that. In the, you have to set those boundaries in the interview process. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you lose all your leverage after they hire you, right? You're like, <clears throat> so I told Barr, I'm like, just so you know, I'm never going to be at a meeting from five, from five o'clock on. <clears throat> or do you want someone like that to lead sales? And so that was like, that was a discussion that we had. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I think boundaries is the, is the most important first thing. Um, and I think, but in order to do that, you have to actually genuinely believe that uh, the, the best version of you at work is like a complete person who is more than just an employee. Uh, and if you can't believe that about yourself, if you can't believe like this, um, that your work identity uh, isn't your only identity, then like you're never going to actually be good at that work identity because you're never going to actually be able to connect with other humans. You know what I mean? You're never going to be able to be there for someone when they're going through something hard. And going through a startup is as much an emotional roller coaster um, as it is anything else. And so... Um, you know, I, I think that like that first belief strict uh, system, like who you are um, and then boundaries and structure and discipline and rigor around that, I think is really critical. And so like I have a subset of like five values that I have, personal values. I might, might share it with some of you guys in the past. Um, and I actually like selected Monte Carlo based on that criteria. Um, and those val- like those values are, are core to who I am. Um, and I shared those values with my boss. And I, and I asked my boss, I'm like, do you have any problems with this? Is there anything? And... You know, like the best thing that's come out of it is that like whenever I, I'm interviewing like an engineering manager who's afraid to come from like Google to a startup because they think it's going to be hard work, I just pull up my calendar and I show them like, yo, find find a meeting on my calendar <laughs> after 5 p.m. Good luck. Like go find it. Cause, right? Because like, so it's actually become like a recruiting tool for me uh, for like people who like, you know, in their head they think, okay, it's a startup. Like it's going to be like work 100 hours. But now I don't know about y'all, but like when I hit like 33, if I work more than 30 hours, I just don't. I don't function anymore. Um, 
And so that's the best version of me. And I think like knowing yourself is like the most, the best gift that you can give to your family and to yourself. Such an interesting take on, on time management and makes a lot of sense. I guess tactically, then how do you actually set up your days and weeks? You're going to have a limited amount of time where you're, you're kind of on the field per se. Um, how do you think about prioritization and then actually uh, determining on, on what you want to focus on? So everyone in my company knows when they can reach me and when they can't reach me. Um, I think that's the first thing. And so I said that expectation really clear. I don't know if you all remember that. I had like this working with me doc. I still have the same one uh, about me. Like just like, hey, this is when you can talk. So like I set really clear boundaries uh, with the world. Um, two, um, the second thing I do is I try to block and structure my, my time based on uh, what I know about myself and what are the most important tasks that I should be doing. So I know about myself that like I am way sharper in the morning than I am in the afternoon. Right. So I save all my podcasts for the afternoon. Uh, and I say like, you know, <laughs> I, I say, I say, think, like, I think about like what my participation role is in a meeting. Um, and I think about like when I do the best. So for example, for meetings that I run, all the meetings that I run, I actually ca- counterintuitively do them in the afternoon. And the reason that is, is because that's the time when I'm most likely to multitask and like, and like, like get onto another screen and screw around. And so all of my meetings, so then I have to like, I actually force myself to focus. And in the morning when I'm actually like, just like participating, like that's when I'm my sharpest and I can actually listen and learn from my team. Um, that's when I try to take those meetings. Um, and like, one, like, and then the other thing is like, you know, block, like blocks in your schedule. So all my one-on-ones, they happen in four hour blocks. Um, and so it's like, as much as you can eliminate context switching, uh, you're just going to be more successful. So I have a recruiting block, a one-on-one block, um, a customer block. And I think that the scary thing in sales is like, okay, if I'm not really like helpful and available, like then the, what, what about the customer? How's that customer centric? But someone gave me this advice and it's the last thing that I'll say. And I, and it was like really good advice. They said to me, you know, as soon as you learn to value your time, as much as your customers value their time, uh, you will be a good salesperson. And there's like a, there's a sub point in there about reciprocity and being at the same level as your buyer and not being this person that's always asking them for something. Um, but being a peer or a partner and like, you, you know, those people who they walk into meetings, they command the room and they have like that relationship with the buyer. We all want that. And so like by blocking my schedule and being hard to get a hold of, it like kind of sets a good level of reciprocity. That's what the buyer's doing to me too. That, that's an amazing answer, Jordan. And we really do value your time and appreciate that even if it is a, a low quality afternoon. Block, <laughs> <laughs> Two o'clock on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You'll just have to cut more stuff out. That's it. <laughs> Now that this has been, uh, been truly amazing. I feel like I learned a lot and I also realized how much I miss not working for you in the past six years. And being well, we are, we are, to, uh, we are hiring Mike, just so you know. And so that goes to both Mike's and Ryan Lipster. You're and how, well, if people are interested in Monte Carlo, how, how should they get in touch? Uh, you should just message me on LinkedIn. I always respond. Earmuffs to our employers. We're all very happy at our current jobs and, <laughs> Thank you for giving us those opportunities to have those current jobs. And Jordan, seriously, thank you so much for spending an afternoon with us. This has been a blast. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.